The Courage of a Kodiak by Emma Cosner I dedicate this book to my friends who have been so supportive in the creation of Nadine's world. Table of Contents, Chapters Chapter 1, Page 4 Chapter 2, Page 8 Chapter 3, Page 12 Chapter 4, Page 15 Chapter 5, Page 19 Chapter 6, Page 21 Chapter 7, Page 24 Chapter 8, Page 26 Chapter 9, Page 28 Chapter 10, Page 32 Table of Contents, Steps, Exposition, Page 4 Call to Adventure, Page 7 Refusal of the Call, Page 11 Beginning of the Adventure, Page 12 Road of Trials, Pages 12, 19, 22, and 25 Unconditional Love, Page 24 The Ultimate Boon, Page 27 Refusal of the Return, Page 30 Magic Flight, page 34. Rescue from Without, page 36. Crossing of the Threshold or Resolution, page 38. Chapter 1. I was never considered the popular girl. I was never known to be super smart or super pretty. I never thought I had a purpose until I did. Three years ago, my mother, Bertha Gray, was diagnosed with tuberculosis, a disease my family thought would end her life. On top of that, we quickly realized that someone would have to take care of her, for she was too sick to be at home by herself. My father, Paul Gray, worked at an industrial factory in downtown Cleveland, our hometown, so he could not take care of my mom. During the day's hours... Helen, my older sister, lived in Columbus with her husband, John Archer, who was one of the telegraphers for the governor of Ohio. So obviously, Helen could not take care of our mom. Then there was my lively older brother, Sam. He was the only blonde in the family, which paired nicely with his tan skin that crinkled around his startling blue eyes. Unfortunately, though, my funny, rough older brother had been one of the first drafted into the Union Army during the Civil War so he could not take care for our sick mom. Of course, that left me. I immediately dropped out of school that week to take care of her. I cooked, cleaned, and did whatever else needed to be done for two years. Then our lives changed yet again, but this time not for the better. It was July 17, 1861 at 3.03 p.m. when the news arrived. My brother, my merry, blue-eyed, luminescent brother, had fallen. I couldn't believe it. Sam, brave, strong, youthful Sam, had fallen. Died. He fought bravely, the man at our door said. But I already knew that very well. I wanted to see him, to see those eyes one last time, to feel that bravery that radio radiated off of his dead body that my living body so horribly lacked. I could not be strong without my brave brother to guide me, to help me. I was heartbroken. Those next few days were a blur. I only ever left my room to check on my mom, but other than that, I stayed in my bed under the covers where I knew nothing would ever change. But yet again, things changed. However, this time, it was for the better. On July 31st, our mother received a knock at the door. Typically on a Sunday's day like today, typically on a summer's day like today, all the children would be out playing in the streets, 
However, when I opened the door, there were no children or even adults enjoying the warm sunshine that was present that day. The street was completely empty, but on our doorstep were three elderly women I did not know. I felt horribly embarrassed. Here I was, a shy girl with disheveled hair and an old nightdress, since I had not left bed that morning, facing these prestigious and perfectly dressed women. Hello, dear. My name is Miss Abdel Hadi. You are Nadine Gray, aren't you? I nodded shyly. Well then, dear, may we come in? Miss Abdel Hadi asked expectantly. I quietly opened the door for them and looked down. Who are these strange women I was letting into my house? I thought. They immediately took a seat in our small parlor with an invitation, and I timidly sat across from them as Miss Abdel Hadi began to speak at a rapid pace. Let's get down to this quickly. We don't have very much time, she began. Miss Carson, Miss Jacoby, and I, she motioned to the other two ladies in the group, are leaders of a society for girls. This society is very private and exclusive, and it is known as the Girls' Society of Espionage. At this new information, a million questions began to burst into my mind. Yes, Miss Abdelhadi said, noting my dazed expression. You heard us correctly. We are an independent, all-female organization based in Washington, D.C. that goes in and around the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia. And we want you to take up a position as a desk secretary for the Confederate Capitol building. Millions of questions swarmed through my brain. How long will I be doing it for? What exactly will I be doing? How dangerous is it? But the only question that came out was, why me? Well, dear, Miss Abdelhadi answered patiently, you have been eligible ever since your poor brother died, and we want you to help him finish the cause he was fighting for. Don't you want that for him? She didn't even give me a chance to answer. Okay, then, dear, here is our way of communication. She handed me a small gray bird that I had not noticed was perched in Miss Carson's lap. When you are ready to sign the contract, she handed me a yellow paper. Attach it to this bird's claws. Oh, don't worry. He knows where to go. But, but I stammered, completely stunned. Really, dear, we must be going. So nice to meet you, she chirped. Chapter 2 After the women left, I opened the contract they had given me. How was I supposed to be a spy? I was quiet, shy, and clumsy. Could it even be possible for me to survive one day? I later showed the society's contract to my mom while she lied in bed. She immediately lit up after reading it and said that this was obviously a very high honor. I knew it took a lot to make my mom happy these days, what with the tuberculosis and the death of her only son, but she smiled and said I could be really good for this. When my dad came home, he gave me a big hug. Hello, Nady. What's that? He asked, noticing the contract I was holding. I showed him the contract and told him all about the Girl Society of Espionage and that I was asked to join. When he looked up from the forms, there were tears in his eyes. He said it would he said it would be a great idea to do it, not only for the union, but for Sam. However, he assured me that he would be very proud of me, whichever I picked. During dinner, Dad also gave us the great news that Helen and John were visiting for dinner tomorrow night. This comforted me, since I knew Helen would be, definitely be helpful with making the decision of whether to join or not, and John was like an older brother to me, so I trusted his opinion. They surely would help me figure out what to do. The next day, John and Helen came for dinner, and they were, of course, full of smiles and laughter per usual. After a delicious and merry meal, I pulled them both into my room to discuss the contract I had received. Helen looked at me curiously and with concern. 
What's wrong, Nady? She questions. John looked at me with the caring eyes that any brother would use with his younger sister. Even though John had only been part of the family for a few years, he felt like a brother I have had since I was very young. Yeah, we are always here to help you, he claimed confidently. I then began to explain the contract and the society itself. I also talked about how I was scared, but how I felt it right to do it for Sam. When I finished my story, they said they both supported me being a spy, but they also supported me staying at home with Mom. That night, after Mom and Dad were fast asleep and Helen and John were well on the train back to Columbus, I took out the contract and my pen. I stared at the contract for a while, then slowly I signed it in my loopy signature. I then took out the small pigeon from its cage and I tied the signed contract to the bird's claws. I opened my small window and looked at the bird one last time. It cocked its small head at me as if it were waiting. As I held up the feathery thing to the window, I thought about all that would entail with this decision and pulled my hand back. If I did this, I would be thrown into a world of confederates and enemies, of espionage and secrets. But I was going to do it, not because of confidence, which I certainly did not have, but for Sam and for every other Union soldier in this horrible war. So for them, I held up the tiny pigeon and the bird flew off. I watched it until it became nothing more than a tiny speck. And then it was gone. Chapter 3 The next day was considered the calm before the storm. Everything was just as it would have been. Mother lied on her bed, silent, breathing deeply and quietly. Father had gone off to work that morning, not to return at exactly seven sharp per usual. The only thing that was different was me. I was terrified. I started to question whether or not I should have really done all of this. I was scared. I was scared to the very bottom of my insides. I was scared of disappointment. I was scared of the Confederacy. But most of all, I was scared of death. The next day was hectic in the most perfect definition of the word. That morning at 7 a.m., a different woman rang at the doorbell. Instead of Miss Abdel Hadi and the other woman who accompanied her, it was another very strict-looking lady named Miss Alford. She bustled in the minute the door was open without an invitation to come inside and started to talk immediately. Hello, dear. I will be taking care of your poor mother whilst you are gone. Do you have your bags ready? She inquired, staring at me, staring me down expectantly. But bags, I stammered. Yes, dear. You are going to be leaving in 20 minutes. 20 minutes? I questioned meekly. Yes, dear. Hurry, go. At that moment, I sprinted up the stairs, not wanting to disappoint this stern woman. I threw out my suitcase from my closet and stuffed it in a few clothes and nightgowns, as well as a picture of my family. I figured it was probably best to travel light. As I rushed downstairs, I saw my mom feebly talk to Miss Alfer, and once I stepped into the room, they both looked up. Miss Alfer made her mouth into the straightest of lines and informed me, I will let you say your goodbyes. I will be waiting outside. I immediately rushed to my mother and gave her a huge hug. I love you, Mama, I whispered, and I love you too, my precious Nady. My mom cooed back feebly. After that, I got up, grabbed my suitcase, and headed for the door. But before I walked out, I turned one last time to look at my Mama, and she gave me the biggest smile in the whole state of Ohio, and I returned it just for her. Chapter 4 Miss Alfer was waiting outside. Okay, dear, this cart... She pointed to a horse-drawn cart filled with hay in our driveway. We'll take you to Richmond, Virginia, where you will be sent to live with Mary McConnor, an affiliate of ours. 
Before I could even respond, she added, during the day, however, you will work as a secretary in the Confederate capital of Richmond, where you will collect intel and send it via a secret hole in a tree that Miss McConnor will present to you upon your arrival. Of course, we will send occasional reports and instructions back to you, so always look back in that tree so no unwanted eyes will find them. You understand, don't you? All I could do was nod. Social anxiety was definitely not a plus in this situation. Well, then get going, Miss Alfred then pushed me into the cart and threw some hay on top of me so I was invisible to passerby. Then Miss Alfred called as I was being towed away. Good luck. You are going to need it. All I could do was sit in the darkness of hay, in the dark mass of hay, and entertain myself. The only problem was the longer I sat in the cart, the worse I felt. My long brown hair was matted and my green eyes were tired from the lack of sleep. I tried to rest, but I was too nervous to close an eye for a second. So I just sat in a comatose state, waiting for this horrible ride to finally end. After several days in the cart, with only the occasional letting it up for food, water, and to use the bathroom, I finally stumbled out of the cart to find myself in front of a quiet country farm with a middle-aged lady standing outside waiting to greet me. Hello, child, the sweet-looking lady said. She had a heart-shaped face and kind brown eyes, as well as graying blonde hair. Hello, miss. It is very nice to meet you, I greeted politely. I had liked her immediately. And it is very nice to meet you too, dearie, she replied sweetly. Come inside now and let's get you cleaned up. Your first day of work starts tomorrow. She winked at me and I smiled slyly back. She then picked up my suitcase and walked inside. Miss Mary's house only consisted of two bedrooms, a kitchen, a parlor, and an outhouse about a sixteenth of a mile away. She showed me to my room where I put down and unpacked my suitcase as she got a bath all ready for me in her backyard. After my uncomfortable bath in her tin tub, I got dressed, and Miss Mary took me to the tree where I would be sending my messages. It was a large, flawless oak of overwhelming size and stature that took my breath away. Once we returned from our short excursion, we both shared a lovely dinner of roasted vegetables and mashed potatoes. After dinner, I got to know Miss Mary better. She was talking about how she got into the war effort after her son, Calvin, passed away in the raid at Fort Sumter a few years ago, and that I was the second spy she was going to be housing for. After my meal, I went upstairs and got dressed for the night. I decided to go to bed later than usual. Tomorrow was going to be a big day. Chapter 5. It was my first day, and I was positively nervous. I was without a doubt frightened. There was no way to explain the deep, sickening aches that were happening in my stomach, but I knew I must go, for it was my job, and I refused to give up at this point. That morning, I got dressed in the Confederate uniform I was provided and headed downstairs. There, Miss Mary gave me a big hug and packed me a lunch for the first day. She was like the grandma I never had. I smiled, waved through the window, and then set out for my first stage on the job. The Confederate Capitol building was not nearly as large as what I was expected of a Capitol building, but it was still quite the sight to see. I went up to the front desk and told the lady that I was the new secretary. She kindly showed me to a desk with a fresh stack of papers and that I was to send them to whom they were addressed without opening them. I said I wouldn't, and I quickly began. To be honest, I had lied to that nice lady. I was going to open every letter and quickly scroll down what the note said and then hide my copies in a secret pocket in my dress, specially made by Miss Mary. I would then later take the letters to the oak tree where they would get directly sent to the union. After I started, the job was very easy. I delivered the original copies to whomever with a smile 
and no one ever expected a thing. I continued to do the job with ease. Soon enough, days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, and I had gained so much trust with the Confederacy that many of the higher-ups entrusted their most important documents to me. Of course, I copied all of them, sending them back to the Union so the people there could act accordingly. Everything was going well, until I almost got caught. Chapter 6 it was a normal day at work, and I had recently received instructions to look for and copy a letter that was to be sent to the Confederate capital that day from a certain Major Downer. However, I had accidentally left that very same set of instructions on my desk, with the Union stamp displayed to anyone as clear as day. However, I had no thought much about it. At I had not thought much about it at the time, so I disregarded it. Unfortunately, that day happened to be the day that the Confederate Attorney General, Thomas Bragg, came right up to my desk with some papers that I was expected to, de that I was expected to deliver for him. The minute I saw him start to look down at the instructions, I snatched it away immediately, too scared to look at the huge hulking figure Bragg was. He then questioned in his tough North Carolinian accent, What was that, young lady? All the confidence that I had built up disintegrated, and all I could say was, Ugh. Nothing, sir. Just a letter that is due to be sent soon. He stared at me so hard I thought his eyes would cause me to split down in two. Then why do I swear on my mama's name that I saw a union stamp on that there form? His words were threatening, and I felt like I could fall apart right there. Suddenly, without even realizing it, I recited, It's a transmission from a Confederate spy. It will be sent to President Davis immediately. He requests it for his eyes only, so that is why I thrusted it away from you. I am sorry, sir. I should not have acted so suspiciously and kept it out for everyone to see. My apologies. I stared as innocently as possible at Bragg, and he eventually replied gruffly, No matter, but one more mistake like that, and I will personally report you to President Davis. Yes, sir. Thank you, I replied meekly. The rest of the day, I worked quietly, my confidence nearly shattered by the almost catastrophic event that happened that day. In fact, when I got home, I cried in Miss Mary's arms. That whole night, and, and she even baked a chocolate cake for me, just to make me feel better. It will be all right, dearie. This will all pass over soon. And now you are here, safe and sound, where nothing will ever hurt you. I loved Miss Mary, and I knew that she loved me. She had done so much for me since my arrival. She cleaned my room and made my bed since the very beginning of my stay. Every time I came home, she gave me a warm smile that always lightened my day, and she would kindly ask me how work was. We always played cards together, then make our modest dinner. While we were laughing and telling jokes, she would so often relax me and tell me what life was like when she was a young girl, but she would also tell me sad stories, like about her father dying in the War of 1812 when she was only five. Regardless, every story felt like I was getting to know her, and it made me care and love her for her even more. I felt like she was my fill-in mom, and I could not ask for anything more of her. Chapter 7 That morning before going to work, I walked to the large oak tree to see if there were any new messages for me. Sure enough, a letter came for me, and I hid it in the secret pocket of my dress. I did not want to open the letter yet, in fear of getting caught again. Work went smoothly enough, and I was already back at Miss Mary's after what felt like an hour or two. 
When I walked into my clean bedroom after greeting Miss Mary, I read the letter I had received that morning. My stomach dropped, not believing what I was reading. My eyes quickly slid over the message a second time. The letter was from Miss Abdel Hattie herself. She was giving me my last mission, which was to steal Confederate plans for a surprise attack at Bentonville. However, the plans were supposedly found in the top left drawer of none other but Jefferson Davis's, the president of the Confederacy's, desk. I immediately burst into tears. How was I, of all people, supposed to sneak into the president's office? My confidence had been shattered and torn apart by a simple mistake, and now I was supposed to sneak into Davis's office? I could not do it. I just couldn't. A stupid girl like me should never have been planted in this situation. Miss Mary heard me crying and bustled into my room. She immediately gave me a huge hug, and I felt much better just from her being there. I then told her what I was sent to do, and she just nodded and listened, completely understanding and con consensuous of me. Despite the fact it made me want to cry out at the thought of breaking into the office of the most important man in the Confederacy, I knew I must do it. Not for myself, but for my country. Chapter 8 The day had arrived for me to steal the plans, and I was shaking all during work. When I got up from my desk to begin my plan to steal the papers, I first told my supervisor that I was required to go to the cabinet's offices on the second floor to deliver a letter. As I was walking up the grand stairway, I noticed that Jefferson Davis himself was at the top of the flight of stairs conversing with an assistant. I politely excused myself as I walked by them, and Davis casually waved his hand as a form of forgiveness without giving me a second thought. As I crept down the hallway, I came across Thomas Bragg's office and was immediately reminded of how dangerous this really was. Thankfully, though, I remembered that I had to look past that and just keep going, for that was all I could really do. Once I approached Davis's office, I noticed that there were no guards in the hallway, and with further inspection, I realized no one was anywhere near me. Deeming it safe, I slowly opened the door of the office and entered a surprisingly simple room. There were a few crimson chairs, yellow wallpaper, and a wooden desk right in front of a blacked-out fireplace. I quickly rushed over to the desk and opened the top left drawer. Sure enough, there was a document that read, Bentonville, Attack Plans. I was ecstatic. I quickly snatched up the paper and hid it inside the secret pocket of my dress, gone from plain view. As I rushed out, I felt something that I had not felt since Sam and I were young. Courage. It pulsated through my veins and made me feel powerful, like no one could ever, would ever, stop me. I felt like a great Kodiak bear, stomping through the woods, being great, almighty, and powerful. I had the courage of a Kodiak, and I knew it. It was such a powerful feeling. I felt dazed, but I could not stop smiling. Chapter 9 when I got home, I jubilantly went up to the great oak tree and carefully placed the plants in the little hollow where they would certainly be taken by dawn break the next day. When I skipped inside from work, Miss Mary greeted me. Hello, Nadine. How was work? I then told her all about my mission and how I had successfully stolen something from the Confederate president himself. Miss Mary smiled at me. Well, that was a perfect way to end your term, wasn't it? My grin suddenly faded. End of my term, I asked. Well, yes, dear, your three-year term ends next month. Then you will have to go home, Miss Mary explained. My eyes filled with tears. I can't go home. I can't. I love it here. My espionage career has been successful. I have this wonderful, happy life. 
Back home, I have no friends. I live by myself with my mom. I have no purpose there, but here I do. Oh, Miss Mary, I do not want to go. I can't go. I have to stay here with you. Not bearing to look at the kind woman, I ran into my room. As I was thinking in my room, I realized how selfish I was acting. I remembered that Sam once told me that courage, once you earned it, never left you, no matter where you were or what you were facing. And I knew the most courageous thing to do right now was to go home to my family and support them. With this realization, I apologized to Miss Mary about my behavior, and she gracefully accepted and forgave me, just as Miss Mary always does. I'm so sorry for acting so poorly, I confided quickly. You have made me so proud recently, and nothing you could do now would ever disappoint me, she replied sweetly. We hugged, and then I went back to bed, ready to make the most out of my last moments with the enemy. Chapter 10 I spent the last week working and doing my routine per usual until finally it was time to go home. I packed my suitcase within my assortment of simple belongings and headed out, sweeping one last look over my simple room. Once Miss Mary and I left the house, we both walked about 30 minutes to the Richmond train station. There, Miss Mary gave me a hug and a kiss on the cheek, wishing me safe travels. I hopped on the train and waved to Miss Mary through a window as we chugged away, Miss Mary getting smaller and smaller. Despite Miss Mary's wishes for a safe journey, this would be anything but... About an hour after our train ride started, the vehicle started to slow and stop. All of the passengers were looking around curiously, and some looked confused or even scared. I looked out the window to see if the thing that was causing the problem was visible, and sure enough, I saw a huge cloud of smoke rise from the near distance, and I knew that could only mean one thing, even though I never experienced it before. War. At that moment, my senses took over. I stood up and exited my train car by taking the back exit and hopping off the stationary train. No one noticed me leave, but they were probably too worried to care. I then started to run, not away like a smart person, but I began to run toward the smoke like the hopelessly dumb girl I was, but I ran not thinking what was going on, not caring. Once I got close to the fight, I noticed a small union boy on the ground, dead. His eyes were barely open, and there was drying blood trickling out of his nose into his open mouth. He was very pale and thin, and there was a yellowish hue around his eyes. I fell to my knees in front of the boy, and I started to cry. This must have been what Sam looked like. Again, not thinking, I found a discarded Union uniform next to the boy, thrown haphazardly to the side. I quickly took the uniform and changed into it, leaving my dress hidden on the lower branch of an oak tree. I then took out a small revolver Miss Mary gave me gave to me for protection, and ran into the battlefield. No one noticed I didn't belong. The smoke was too thick, and the battle was too aggressive for anyone to get a real good look at me. I started to fire at the gray-clad Confederates, not caring where my revolver hit. I had no time to think, but I knew I was being horribly dim-witted. At that moment, I saw him. A Confederate soldier was aiming his rifle right at me. I had no time to react. I just stood there like a perfectly open target. I soon heard the shot go off, and I squeezed my eyes shut, ready for the impact, but it never came. When I opened my eyes, I fell weak-kneed to the ground. There, now surrounded by a pool of blood, was John Archer, my other brother, my only other brother. Nady, he whispered. I immediately bent down toward him. John, can you hear me? I pleaded, encouraged by his voice. I I enlisted a year after you left. 
Helen would be so devastated if you died. I can't let that happen. I love her too much. John whispered. John, I yelled. His eyes started to get milky when he let out one last breath, and then he was still. No, 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 I thought. This can't be right. But sure enough, John was dead. I got up and ran out of the battle. My brain was finally back in control, and all I could do was run. When I made it back to the tree, I quickly got my dress back on, and I tossed the uniform back into the bloodied ground. I then ran back to the tracks, praying that the train was still there, and sure enough, it was. I slipped back into my car without anyone noticing how dirty or disheveled I was with blood stained red on my hands. Thanks to everyone jumping around in a frenzy, I was never even given a second thought or concern. I began to think amidst the madness. Running into that battle was not courage. It was stupidity. John sacrificing himself was true courage. That was when I realized courage is not benefiting yourself. It is benefiting others, even though it is undoubtedly difficult. It takes a great sacrifice on your part. That was what bravery, bravery really meant. At that exact moment, the train lurched forward, and I watched as we sped away from the smoke and blood with tears pooling in my eyes.